We are in the midst of a long series. I think maybe some of you are going to wonder, what are we talking about? But this is actually um, part number five of an ongoing series on a very critical issue in the church these days, actually any day, and that is about judging. We have uh, spent the first four parts basically talking about when not to judge and why judging is hurtful to unity and is unloving and how it's done wrongly. And we began making the transition into um, correct judging the last time, but we didn't quite get there. So today is the continuation of that, the right way to judge, because not all judging that you will do or I will do is wrong. Um, and you've probably figured that out by now as you're listening. You're probably wondering, at one, what point is Pastor Lee going to get to when we're supposed to judge? <laughs> because uh, I know that what the rest of the Bible says, and um, the world may not know that, but we know. Um, I think I quoted to you last time, John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So there is righteous judgment, and we're actually commanded in that verse in John 7 to judge that way. When Paul wrote his letter, he expected people to be judging what he wrote. Is it true or is it not? 1 Corinthians 10, 15, he said, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Do you remember a group called the Bereans? They were commended for carefully looking into the gospel when it first came to their town and it was preached. And um, they were called more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they analyzed the Bible to judge to see if the things the Apostle Paul was preaching was really true. Then there are verses like 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, where John writes, Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Why should we do that? Why should we make that judgment? He goes on in the verse, Because many false prophets have gone into the world. Wow. If everybody spoke the truth, even in religion, we wouldn't really need to evaluate too much, would we? But the fact that even in churches and in religion, there are lots and lots of liars requires us to do some judging. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16, actually exhorts the believers. And it said, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. You want to have peace in your city gates, in your land, then make sure that your, your judgments that you render in your land are according to truth. Well, whether it's a formal kind of judging you might see in a courtroom in ancient days or even today in America, or whether it is the informal kind of judging. We just kind of do in our own heads when we listen to somebody talk or we look at their character and we ask ourselves, huh, is that right or is that wrong? Really, judging we do all of the time. Your parents your parents out there might look at your kid's behavior, and you do, and you, you wonder, are they behaving well or are they behaving poorly? You're making a judgment about their, uh, their behavior. You see on the news some policeman who's been thrust into the news and his actions down to every little thing he's done are being evaluated on the news by a video and you're going through a process. Did this policeman act justly or did he abuse his authority? And you're, you're involved in that kind of judgment as well. But I want to ask you this. Have you ever taken time to judge your own judgments? <laughs> Have you ever asked yourself, why are you judging the way you're judging? Are, is the standard that you're using to become morally outraged at other people a right standard? Or are you actually importing some wrong standard and letting other people guide your morality and then you're getting upset or outraged or angry over something you think is wrong, but maybe God says it's wrong, or maybe God says it's not as wrong as other things are wrong. Have you taken time actually to judge your own judgments? That's what I'm asking you to do by the Word of God. And I don't know any better way for me to judge the way my opinions are or to judge my judgments except to measure it by the Word of God. 
to go to the law of God, to go to the mind of God and see how he judges and ask myself, is my criteria the same as God's? Is my way of judging the same as his? Am I judging some things too harshly and other things too lightly because I'm falling in line too much with the way my culture thinks and not enough in line with the way the law of God actually thinks. I found that a lot of people don't really study the law of God. They don't really study what righteousness is in the Bible. We know the Bible talks about righteousness, and we know the Bible talks about justice, but we may assume its meaning, import that into our own mind, use that as our criteria, and then join other people in judging certain actions that are either not wrong at all, even though society says they're wrong, or maybe they're being judged too harshly. God doesn't judge them as harshly. You may think in your mind, for example, that all sins are equally bad. I know that a lot of people think that way, and they may think that way because they know that it only took one sin for Adam and Eve to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. It only took one sin for Lucifer to be cast out of the highest heaven, right? So one sin resulted in God's anger and resulted in expulsion from God's presence. One sin makes us guilty before God. We know that, and we use that in our evangelism when we talk to unbelievers and they may downplay their own sin. But even though that is true, it's not true that God responds to all sins in the same way. Some sins, as you read your Bible, and it's pretty obvious as you read the Bible, God was more patient with. Other sins aroused the anger of God immediately. Some sins God labeled in his law as an abomination, something that was so revolting to him it was like he would spit it out of his mouth. Other sins he would punish, but he would not describe as an abomination. Did you know that some sins in God's law, he required the death penalty? Other sins, nowhere near that severe of a penalty. That shows you that in the mind of God, not all sins are to be treated equally. Well, our culture doesn't seem to always understand that. Um, in John chapter 19 and verse 11, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, interestingly, and Pilate was judging Jesus, and remember how Pilate warned him, do you not know that I have authority to release you or I have authority to crucify you? Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to this high and mighty Roman? He said, you would have no authority over me unless it was granted to you from above. And then he said, consequently, those who turned me over to you have the greater sin. Jesus knew there were greater sins and there were lesser sins. That doesn't make the lesser sins good. It just means we should not treat all sins the same. In your own mind, you've arranged some kind of an ethical hierarchy. Oh, this is worse than this, or this is better than that. But is that arrangement biblical? That's what I'm asking you to think about today. Judge your judgments by God's word. There was an NFL quarterback a few years ago who was kicked out of the NFL for being involved in the entertainment of dog fighting, vicious dog fighting. Remember that? His name was Michael Vick. NFL was very concerned about cruelty to animals, so much so they took one of their star quarterbacks and said, you're out of here. And he was a very exciting quarterback to watch. How many quarterbacks in the NFL do you think are kicked out of the NFL because they commit adultery against their wives? I imagine an NFL quarterback could do that 50 times and no one would bat an eye in terms of, well, yeah, sure, he's allowed to play. I'm just using that as an illustration. Please don't think at any time that the world has a hierarchy of ethics correct before God. They most certainly do not. And your mind cannot be educated by that or arranged by that. Did you know that committing adultery not the law against committing adultery is one of God's Ten Commandments. That puts it pretty high in terms of a hierarchy of commands. 
Well, let me ask you this question also. What is a worse sin? Saying words that would attack somebody's dignity, which uh, right now in society is, is a very serious and a bad thing, or reacting violently against those who said those words. What's the worst sin? What do you say? What would God say? Or let me ask you this question. Um, in your judgment, what do you find more distasteful, um, disgusting, or even, I would say, disqualifying in a political candidate? Because people are thinking about that these days. A man or a woman who incessantly is combative in his posture and rude in his tone and insulting in his mannerisms and his words, or someone who's quite polished, soft-spoken, talks about unity, and yet he openly supports the murder of innocent unborn children, openly supports appointing judges who will tear down the rights of churches to speak and preach on whatever subject they want to, tear down the very definition of a family, not just from the Bible, but from nature. One who is unwilling to take measures in society to protect innocent citizens and businesses from criminals. What is worse in your heart and in your mind? When you go through that process of deciding that and judging that, you're going through a process of evaluating behavior in a hierarchy of ethics. And you may be right, you may be wrong, but what I'm asking you is how do you know you're right? On what basis do you even claim that? What do you react to more in the news? And what do you just kind of yawn at when it comes across? I dare say that protecting an animal that is in the endangered species list is much more important to the world than sexual fidelity. And yet in God's word, I think you will not find that hierarchy. Well, again, when you answer questions like this, you're involved in making ethical determinations, and it needs to be based on something solid, something that gets beyond the prevailing opinion of our day, or as some people like to say these days, get on the right side of history. Well, how do you know the right side of history? When Jesus comes back, as I read it, he's going to end history, and he'll tell us, what the right side of history actually was. Well, it all starts with how God judges, evaluating our judgments, our opinions, our ethics, based on a careful study of God's word. And that is what we are going to attempt to do, to look into how God judges. I'm going to give you five main characteristics of God's judgments. That's our outline, five main characteristics of God's judgments. And as we kind of learn these characteristics, we'll try to apply them to some of the issues that you might be facing or might be going on in society. All right, first characteristic of God's judgments are, and this might go without saying, they are good. God's judgments are good. They're righteous is another way of putting it. God is a righteous and a just judge, we're told in the Bible, who judges with equity. If you want to turn quickly to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, and I will be bouncing around different verses here, but Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 from the law of God uh, in the Old Testament, sort of summarizing the character of God's law and what God has said, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, God has called the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. You hear it over and over again in that verse. Just, righteous, he does no injustice. It's all done with equity. It's kind of all in that verse and many verses like that. If um, you move forward to the Psalms, Psalm 37, you'll see in the Psalms many times David or some of the other composers are celebrating a God, not just for his salvation, but for his judgments. His judgments are celebrated. Psalm 37, verse 28 is just one example among many. Psalm 37, verse 28. 
For the Lord loves justice. I find that interesting that he doesn't just do justice. Like sometimes we might say, oh, bummer, I have to do justice as if justice is a bad thing. We just got to kind of endure it. And here it actually says he loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. God considers it his responsibility to make sure eventually at the right time the wicked are cut off. And those that are innocent and follow him are going to be preserved. That's part of his justice. There are tons of verses like this. I would take too much time if I went through them. I'll just give you a few more that show that God's judgments against sin are good. In fact, they're even to be rejoiced in. By the way, when I say that, that doesn't mean that we're happy when we see wicked people suffering under the hand of God's judgment. That doesn't make us happy. That doesn't make us uh, happy that we see them hurting. It makes us joyful that we see God putting things right. And the only way he can do that, of course, is to punish the wicked. But if you turn to Psalm 94 and verse 2, celebrating God as king, and many of these psalms in the 90s celebrate God's, um, God's sovereignty and his kingship and what he'll do as king or even does do presently as king. Psalm 94 and verse 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. Haven't you ever thought that? One of those proud people getting away by breaking the law all the time. And you know what you think inside. Who's going to kind of hold them accountable to that? Well, that's the spirit behind that verse. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. Um, go past the Psalms and past Proverbs and go to Ecclesiastes and to um, verse chapter 12, verse 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. This is kind of the end of Ecclesiastes. If you ever read Ecclesiastes, you know it's all about what really are we doing down here on earth? Everything seems to be a waste of time and vain and vanity. You know, everybody dies the same, whether they're good or bad. I mean, what's the point in life? That's kind of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it comes to the conclusion at the end that the only thing we know for certain that we should do is keep God's commandments. Then look at verse 14, the last verse of it. He says, for God will bring every act to judgment. Did you know that? Every single thing, everybody does will be brought to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or bad. People think they get away with stuff all the time. Nobody saw me. <laughs> but God saw them. And by the way, your conscience knows. So there's always two witnesses against you, your conscience and God. By the way, there's some angels that have recorded it as well. <laughs> so everything that is hidden will be brought out eventually, every bad motive, and it will be judged. There it is. Each human being is going to be judged by the eternal just judge, whose name is Jesus. He's going to use a righteous law, and he's going to render perfect judgment. Now, that is a fearful thing to unrighteous people, to people who disregard the Bible, don't go to church, could care less about God's standards. Yeah, they want to lecture other people morally, but they won't look at all the moral shortcomings in their own life. They're lawbreakers on the earth. But for those of us who love justice, that actually brings us a measure of delight. In fact, speaking of rejoicing in God's judgments, turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation. And let's go to chapter 19. I mean, we were talking about almost the very end of the Bible here. Revelation 19, getting ready for Jesus' second coming. And you look in verses 1 through 5, and what do you find? You find John getting a vision, and he's seeing a great multitude in the heaven, according to verse 1 in Revelation 19. And uh, what are they saying? They're singing. They're saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Look at verse 2. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And then they keep singing about it. And they, they fall down and they worship God and say, hallelujah. In fact, you go down to verse 5, it says, Give praise to our God, all you as bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. They're singing a song, rejoicing, not so much about God's salvation, although that's always part of justice, but they're singing about God bringing down wrath on the wicked. Finally, 
you know, we ought to have some songs in church about rejoicing in this attribute of God that he's a righteous judge and he does actually judge the wicked. I don't know why, but it seems Christians and evangelicals shy a little bit away from singing about, yes, we're glad God is judging people. <laughs> we think maybe that's a bad thing to sing about. It doesn't sound quite right to us, but lo and behold, there it is in the Bible. So for all of those people out there that maybe took what I said in the first four um, sermons that we gave on not judging, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we should never, never judge one another. Hey, don't you judge me, man. We hear that all the time, right? So hopefully we're beginning to bring the balance to that now as well. We see, ah, ah, God does really do judgment. Proper judging. I'm going to say that slower because I know sometimes when I say too much, you kind of lose kind of lose track of what the preacher's saying. Proper judging actually is a blessing to a group of people. There would not be, I don't think, anywhere near as many protests and riots in a society if they felt what's going on at the top is actually righteous. If everything was being done with equity, I think people would be like, you know what, can't complain against that. People recognized intuitively that when the leaders are really cutting it straight and it's really well in balance, there's not really that much to get angry about. I mean, some people get angry at anything, you know what I mean? <laughs> They'll complain about anything. But most people will be like, no, I think, I think they're really trying hard to do it right. It's when we think that we're not being treated like other people are being treated, that's when the antenna goes up there and people start to say, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong here, right? Proper judging is a blessing to a society. It really is. I, I'm going to state that even more strongly. I don't believe we will ever achieve, and I think this is a biblical statement, I don't think we'll ever achieve paradise on planet Earth. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Paradise on planet Earth. I don't think we're ever going to get there until the Lord Jesus returns and wages his righteous war, as it says actually, Later in Revelation 19, if your eyes go down and look at verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And here it is, in righteousness he judges. Wow! He judges and what does he do? Wages war. Wow! We will never get to chapter 20 in Revelation, which is paradise on planet earth. We'll never get there until we go through chapter 19. And what is chapter 19 all about? Jesus returning bodily and physically, riding a beautiful white horse of some kind, breaking through the heavens, shining in glory. Everybody that's died and that is a saint follow, following him on white horses. He has his crowns on his head. He has written on him faithful and true. And he comes back to do what? To judge righteously, to wage a war, and bring about the death of all those that are wicked. Judge all the nations of the earth and their leaders and bring in utopia, bring in paradise, bring in that thousand-year millennial reign of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, over the entire planet. We never get there without righteous judgment. Never. Yeah, I was expecting more of an amen there. I was just, you know, that, that, was one, that was one of those things where, you know, you think like, are they with me out there? <laughs> if I was standing, I'd yell it a little louder. <laughs> a little harder sitting now. That was the exclamation point. That's what we're waiting for. And we ain't never going to get there through human government, guys. Just never going to get there. So change your hopes a little bit. And put your hope, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, fix your hope completely on the revelation to be brought to you when Jesus comes back in glory. By the way, another side comment, but very important. Do you know that God the Father trusts the Lord Jesus Christ so much that he decided he was going to take one of the most important uh, responsibilities of being God and give it entirely to his son? In John chapter 5, and verse 22, Jesus said the Father, God the Father, judges nobody but has decided to give all judgment over to the Son of God. Why? Jesus said, so that everybody will honor the Son of God the same way they honor God the Father. If you don't believe Jesus is God in human flesh, you have not honored Jesus the way he deserves, because that's who he is. And he comes back to execute 
only what God is allowed to do or could do. God won't even give that to the smartest angel. That goes only to the only begotten Son of God, God of God, of the same nature as the Father. And He comes back to do that judgment. Paradise on planet Earth. That's when we're going to get there. And that is why Psalm 2 warns all of the government officials, all of the judges of the earth, and he says, you need to do homage to the sun. I love the way the King James says it. Kiss the sun. You know, how the kings used to hold out their hands and people would bow down before it and kiss their ring and all of that stuff. We don't do that type of stuff anymore. But uh, kiss the sun. Give him honor. Give him glory. Because when he comes back, he's going to be your judge. He is, as it says in Revelation 19, King of kings and Lord of lords, right? And when he comes back, He's going to claim what belongs to him, and that is this entire planet. Full justice will be meted out to all of the nations, and every Christian that waited for final justice will be vindicated on that day. And every oppressed minority who felt abused by the majority, as long as they put their trust in Almighty God, will be vindicated on that day. Hallelujah. So that's a day worth waiting for. That's a good reason to study end times. Amen? Amen? That's the first characteristic of God's righteous judgments, that they are indeed good and they're righteous. And I kind of added on there, they're worth waiting for. <laughs> they're worth waiting for. All right, characteristic number two. Now, you know, when I give outlines, I rarely get done with everything, but we're going to keep plugging away here. Characteristic number two of God's judgments. Remember, we're trying to judge our own. So we're trying to bring our own in conformity with this. God judges based on, well, if I said fill in the blank, what would you say? Based on what? His law, right? God judges the world based on a standard, and that standard is his own law, his own law. The Lord could care less what the modern universities say today is ethical. I don't know what them boys and girls are being taught in college these days, but I really doubt it's the book of Deuteronomy. I really doubt it is, uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer or the Sermon on the Mount or Paul's epistles. I really doubt it. I think when they use the word love these days, they mean something different. When they use the word justice these days, they mean something different. I don't think it's God's law. But God measures your actions, my actions, the actions of other people based on one righteous standard. And that standard is His law. Listen. And listen carefully. True righteousness and justice can only come from God's word. Therefore, the more a society is ignorant of the Bible, the more that society is going to define ethics in a way that does not conform to the Word of God. Doesn't that make sense? As our society has become more and more biblically illiterate, that means they don't have the foggiest idea what the Bible says, then we should expect that society and their leaders to continue to espouse a morality that does not conform with the Bible. And they may get very upset about it. They may get very zealous for that morality, but there ought to be red flags in your mind that says, wait a minute, what is it that's guiding their thinking? It sure ain't the Bible. It's something else. There's going to be a vacuum that gets filled in. It may be the latest philosophy or whatever it is, but it's not God's word. I ask you this question also. If I were to ask you, define righteousness and justice. I know you can't say it right now, but what would that be in your mind? When I say, what is the definition of righteousness and justice? Did you know that scripture repeatedly reveals that there is a vital uh, connection between those two words, between those two concepts, justice and righteousness? Many of you are fans of A.W. Tozer. He's an incredible author. But in writing about the justice of God, he wrote this. In the inspired scriptures, justice and righteousness are scarcely to be distinguished from each other. That's true. 
they're really talking about the same thing. In fact, if you did a word study in Hebrew, get out your Bible software, do your little right click, and uh, find out what the Hebrew term is there and follow it through the Old Testament. If you did that, you would find out that righteousness and justice all cluster into the same Hebrew word group, the Sadiq word group. The root word there, Sadiq, means to conform to a standard. In other words, God's moral or ethical standard of behavior needs to be conformed to, and that God revealed to the people of Israel in his law when he revealed his law on Mount Sinai. Ah, when you get to the New Testament, you did a word study of the Koine Greek, you'd find out the same connection. Justice and righteousness, they don't sound at all like the same word group in English, but in Greek they come from the same word cluster. Dikaios, or dikaiosune, or dikeo, which is the verb. They all sound similar, don't they? Righteous, righteousness, or to justify, these are all part of the same word group. Justice, in other words, is righteousness applied. And judging rightly means you're judging justly. Consequently, a righteous judge is a just judge. There is no distinction. The standard that God uses for judging rightly and judging justly, again, is not the latest poll that changes, right? Um, is homosexual behavior um, legitimate? And okay, or is it wrong, twisted, and perverted? Well, go back to the 1950s, 1940s, 1930s. Shoot, you can go all the way back to many centuries, and the vast majority of people in Western civilization would recognize, you know, we might feel sorry for some people struggling with that sin, but we recognize that this is inherently harmful to family. This is inherently harmful to people. It's a harmful to society. It's not... It's not a benign thing. It causes deterioration of society, and it's wrong. Well, somewhere along the line, people's opinions change, and now the polls are increasingly in favor of, well, I guess people are born that way, so it can't be all that bad. Meanwhile, the Bible never changed, right? <laughs> you go back to the 1950s, you go back to 1609, you look at the King James Bible, you go back earlier than that, says the same thing that this is a perversion of God's gift of sexuality, that it's a sin that can be repented of and can be overcome. And people have come out of that lifestyle, but it's not a lifestyle that people are to embrace. That doesn't change over time. Or when you hear somebody on the news and you can tell they are expressing moral outrage and you're just kind of listening to them and try not to get angry yourself, just kind of pull out of yourself and ask yourself, why is this woman, why is this man so upset? They're all upset at President Trump or the opposite. They're all upset at Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton. And just try not to get into that. Pull yourself back a minute and ask yourself, what are they really upset about? And chances are they're upset that what they believe is right or wrong is getting violated. And they're really upset about it. They're expressing moral outrage. They think that that things should go in a certain direction, and if this person is in charge or that person is in charge, they're going to mess it all up, <laughs> right? Try not to get into the emotion and into the bait and just kind of look at what's happening. They're going through a process of judgment, which is perfectly normal for a human being to do. But are they getting it right according to God's word? What really is going on there? You need to know. We Christians back up to something. When we are pushed, why do you say that? Even when we disagree, remember when we were talking about don't judge one another, and we showed how on lesser issues, many times Christians can disagree, right? Is this behavior right or wrong? Ah, well, you got Christians on both sides of that. There are issues in society that we're going to debate about during political season, and Christians can fall on either side of some of those issues. And they're going to disagree about that. But at least what you see going on in the mind of a Christian is they're trying to back up to what? I think that's what the Bible said, right? If their conscience is really bound by the word of God, they're not trying to be rebellious to God. They're not trying to be ornery and just debate with other people. They're trying to back up to what they have been taught 
or they have read as, that's what the Bible said. So what you're really disagreeing over is, what does the Bible actually say? It's an interpretive debate. And that's a good debate to have, but it's to be done in what? Love. And remember, love is patient and love is kind. So don't get irate. Don't squash the debate and the conversation by your anger. And when you do, apologize. And let's get back to talking and teaching patiently the way we're supposed to in the church. By the way, I'm preaching at you guys. Uh, Hope Bible Church is the only church I'm allowed to preach to right now. <laughs> so I don't mean to say that I think like you're really bad at judging versus other churches. I love this church. I think there's a lot of self-restraint that's been shown in this church. And I, I actually love the fact that I can sit here and see in some cases 20, in some cases 10 years of the effect of expository preaching and good solid doctrinal teaching that's affected you and affected your ability to think through these issues. And in my own sort of way, I'm very proud of you. I'm proud of how you've responded to this. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, you know, and all this stuff coming together. And sometimes our disagreements have more to do with our, our backgrounds than necessarily our ethnicity. They have more to do with whether you grew up in the country or the city. You know, views about guns, for example, are very different in the city where you see them abused all the time and in the country where... Everybody has a gun and, you know, expects to have one. It's going to take the police 30 minutes to get to their house anyway, you know. And um, so some of these views are just different based upon upbringing and all of that. That's okay. That's okay. But what we need to be doing is backing up to the Bible. What does the Bible actually say? Now, if you would turn back to the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 4, I want to show you something else here. Deuteronomy chapter 4. What is Deuteronomy? It is the second giving of the law. So that's what the word Deuteronomy actually means, the second giving of the law. And why were they giving the law a second time? Uh -huh. Because the first generation that was supposed to enter into the land of promise did not. And why did they not? Because they came to Kadesh Barnea. We call it Kadesh Barn Grill. That's a way to remember it. Kadesh Barnea. And uh, they arrived there, and instead of entering into the promised land, they disbelieved God. They believed the ten spies rather than Joshua and Caleb. But they didn't get to enter into the land of the promise. And uh, so they had to go out into the wilderness. They died for the next 40 years until the next generation came around the backside of the promised land. On the other side of the Dead Sea, came around the Mount Nebo where Moses died. He got to look into the promised land. And now Moses was instructing them, the next generation, a second time about the law of God all over again because the first generation did not get it. Well, here you see the law being taught all over again. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, you hear this instruction. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do this thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, do this law, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and an understanding people. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today. Do you hear that? Moses was saying, you guys are going to enter the land and people are going to hear about you and your law and they're going, we haven't heard of another nation anywhere in the world that has as righteous and wise people as you. A God that lives right there with them, tabernacle, right in their midst, and a law that's so perfect. And they're just going to boast about this nation. You have the best nation. You have the best law. And Moses was really boasting about what God had given them. You have the best. Don't listen to the other gods. Don't turn to the unbelievers to try to figure out what's right and wrong. I gave you a law. It's a perfect law. It's a blessing to the nation. It's a blessing to the people. It upheld equity and justice. Who else in all of the world had a law like that? And the answer is nobody. 
It was a special provision just for them. Dr. Leon Morris, in his book, The Atonement, which is really a great book about salvation, but it has a great insight about righteousness. It says this, we tend to be critical of a regulation like life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 21. However, to the people of that day, this must have seemed like a wonderful advance. It meant that the wealthy and the powerful could not get away with crimes against the lowly. They must be punished with strict justice in exact proportion to the crimes they had committed, no matter against whom. So if you're a wealthy landowner and you injure the eye of a servant or slave, you've got to pay with your eye. There was no favoritism in the law of God. Again, that is why you find songs about the law of God and its justice even in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, rejoicing the soul. I'm sorry, restoring the soul. But they rejoiced in it as well. When you analyze God's law, and I know there are a lot of modern people that do that, and they say God's law is flawed. They try to find an error in it, you know, and they really pick at it. And if you really study the way modern liberal scholarship attacks the Bible, you'll find in there all the time that men are so arrogant that they're willing to try to judge God's law. They think that they know more about morality than the Holy One of Israel. By the way, I don't want to be in their shoes when they stand in the judgment before God Almighty, right? Wow, they're actually trying to correct the eternal mind of God. Well, that's another sermon. I think sometimes we forget how beautiful and perfect the standard of God's law is. In fact, I think we New Testament believers sometimes have a negative view of the law. You know why? Because in part, we've been told over and over again, the law of God cannot save you. Is that true? Yes, that's true. You could try to perform the law of God, but you'll find out that you don't measure up to it. And unless you kept it all perfectly throughout your whole life, you're guilty before God. We always uh, point out to the unbelievers, hey guys, don't say that my good works are better than my bad works, because first of all, that might not be true. <laughs> but second of all, even if you have one bad work anytime in your whole life, one bad thought, one bad word, you're guilty of the entire law of God of breaking it. That's what it says in James chapter 2 and verse 10. The law is a standard. If you break it at any point, you're guilty of the whole thing. So we're like, okay, you can't get saved through the law. So we have a diminished view of the law. But Paul never said the law was bad. He, in fact, he wrote in Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's a quote. Wow, it's a perfect law. Theologian Louis Burkhoff notes the connection between righteousness and the law when he writes, quote, the fundamental idea of righteousness is that of strict adherence to the law, end quote. There has to be a standard of right and wrong. And that standard is God's beautiful, perfect law. Now you might ask, where does God's law come from? And I think because of time, we'll close with this thought. Where does God's law come from? Did God find it on some other planet <laughs> and say, hey, that's a good find. Let's bring that to planet Earth and teach these less developed civilizations all about this wonderful law found way beyond Pluto. I was about to say planet Pluto, but it's been demoted, right? It's no longer a planet. Well, where does the law of, of God come from? And the answer is, well, Dr. Wayne Grudem, I think one of the clearest ethical thinkers of our day today, and I highly recommend his book on um, biblical ethics if you want to sort through these issues in a much deeper kind of way. Um, he says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. Okay, we got that. And listen to this part, is himself, is himself the final standard 
of what is right. Did you get that? In other words, God himself is the standard of what is right. Listen, God does not act righteously so that he can try to conform to some right standard that's outside of himself. If there were such a standard outside of God, it would tell God what to do. It would be God's moral instruction book. And if that were true, then God could no longer be God. God would no longer be the best. God would no longer be the wisest. God would no longer be the purest because he would have to figure out right and wrong behavior from somebody else. But God acts righteously and writes down a righteous law because that is the way God is. God's law, that is that 613 commandments that he gave on Mount Sinai, the centerpiece of which were the Ten Commandments, and the greatest of all those commandments was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest was to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told us that, right? That law, it wasn't wrong. It wasn't unrighteous. It came from the very character of God himself. You do understand that the law of God was communicated to the children of Israel somewhere around 1446 or 47 BC. There's a lot of human history before the law was given. Abraham himself lived some six, 700 years before that law was even given. That means that Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his 12 sons all lived and had to behave righteously before the law of Moses had even been communicated. How on earth would they know what was right and wrong? Answer when God made humanity, when God made man and woman, he put inside of that man and woman who were made in whose likeness? God's, right? He put inside of them in what we call man's constitution an awareness of right and wrong, an understanding of right and wrong behavior already there. In fact, he not only put inside their constitution an awareness of right and wrong, he gave them a barometer. He gave them a way of judging whether they were doing right or wrong, and that's called our what? Conscience. So we had both the understanding of it and we had the awareness of whether or not we were doing it or not. All put inside of man from creation. Now, man corrupted that because of his sin, and the word of God had to be spoken to clarify God's righteousness, but it was already there inside of man. In fact, when you study Romans and you go to Romans chapter 2, Paul points that out. He says, when those unbelieving Gentiles instinctively know what's right and wrong, apart from ever having read the law of Moses, they will be judged by that standard. God will judge them by their own awareness of what right and wrong behavior is, and God will use that very standard in their own mind to judge them because they fail to meet up to their own standard. In their own conscience, whatever perverted and twisted understanding of right and wrong they have left over from the time of creation, they're still aware of that, and God is aware that they're aware of that, and God will use that, not the scripture that they never heard, to judge them for all eternity. And they will be condemned by that because they failed to live up to that very standard. That's inside of man from the time of creation. Abraham knew that God was a righteous God. God appears to him with two angels. Remember the story? He's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? And God says to himself, should I reveal to my friend Abraham what I'm about to do? I'm about to destroy these cities of the plain that are into violence and inhospitality and, yes, homosexual behavior. And so he goes ahead and he tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham says, what? Are you the judge of all planet Earth? going to treat the righteous people in Sodom the same way you treat the wicked people? Abraham had a big problem with that, and rightly so. He said, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do that, God, to treat the righteous and the wicked alike. They're not alike. And so then the bartering with God happened. Remember, what if there's just 50 people in the city that are righteous, oh God? Then he does a little calculation. 
What if there's only 45 or 40, 35, 30, 20, 20? He comes down to 10 and doesn't dare ask anymore, right? And God says, I'll save the whole city for the 10. How many righteous ended up being in the city of Sodom? Three. Lot and his two daughters. And they weren't even all that righteous. <laughs> and he saved them. He delivered them out of the city. And he destroyed the city to show before Moses gave the law of God that was righteous, God already was righteous. Abraham already knew God was righteous. God was already doing righteous judgments before that law. So where does the righteous standard of the law of God come from? Answer, it comes from God's own eternal and righteous being. And that is why we must keep backing up our judgments to the Word of God, studying it, analyzing it, and understanding how to make proper judgments. God's justice is unchanging because God himself is unchanging. I don't have time for more, but we're going to pick up with that thought next time. We're also going to look about how God bases his judgments on objective criteria like people's actions based on witnesses and why that's so important when you and I make judgments about others that we are dealing with fact that is confirmed by witnesses and we do not form negative judgments even in our own minds against people, even people we don't like until we have facts. We'll show how God does that. We'll show why that's right and we'll continue building on that. Now, um, next week we're going to be privileged to have a guest speaker here and then on for a couple weeks, but God willing, we'll be able to eventually finish this series. But I want you to be thinking about God's righteous standards. We're going to have our baptismal service. Let me just pray pray uh, to conclude us now. Heavenly Father, thank you for helping our minds to be more and more conformed to your truth. We pray your people be zealous for Bible study and zealous for righteousness and justice. We know, Lord, that's a big topic in the world today, and it should be. And Father, we would pray that all of us, particularly those of us who have had, maybe have not been treated as poorly in society as other people have, that we would be very careful and sensitive to realize that this is important to people who have been downtrodden. And we believe even as believers in Jesus, the more poorly we are treated in church, the more we will feel and understand and have compassion on those who are suffering unjustly. Help us to uphold a standard of righteousness, be a voice for righteousness, and be an example of a community that knows how to treat each other with righteousness. For so, Father, we've prayed in the name of your Son, the coming righteous judge. And all God's people said, Amen.